Hey, this is the podcast of Sue Wesleyan Church's sermon from our Sunday worship services. I'm Pastor Brooks, the one who usually teaches here. Whether you're a regular attender or just listening in for a sample of what our church is like, I really hope this benefits your growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Marv. Um, You may not recognize me. I've got a new look going on. Uh, If you don't know, about 30 days ago, I retired from the Coast Guard, and I have not touched a razor since, which is... uh, Pretty, pretty liberating feeling when you have, have had to shave your face every day for 20 years. Um, but hey, we're going to jump right in this morning, okay? So we're, we're continuing our series called Reconnect, and we're talking about and looking at what Scripture has to say, what God's Word has to say about navigating our lives in the digital age. And in the last two weeks, we've talked about our relationships with other people, and then we talked about our relationships with our spouses and our children, who also qualify as other people, but... You know what I mean there, okay? So today what we're going to look at, though, is we're going to look at our relationship with God. How do we cultivate a deep and growing relationship with God in the midst of a shallow, busy, distracted world? I want you to imagine with me for a second. You can close your eyes if you need to. Um, If you don't trust the person sitting next to you, you can keep them open. Don't look at them, okay? But whatever works for you. But I want you to imagine if you could go any place in the world Where would you go to be alone with God, just you and God together? Anywhere you can think of is fine. There's no right answer here. It's only your answer. You can open your eyes if you were obedient um, to that. But I'm going to tell you, my answer is kind of lame, and you're probably going to be disappointed. I would go to my living room. It's a boring place, okay? It's not some, some of you might have gone to like some beach in Bora Bora or, you know, your great-great-grandfather's deer blind that he hunted out of in the, you know, early 1900s. I'm boring. Um, Robin's kind of there with me. We, we just want to be like alone in our house. So like, honey, take the kids to a movie for a little bit. I'm going to turn off all my devices. I'm going to shut down the screens. I'm going to take out my Bible and I'm going to spend some time alone with God. That's where I've had my best time alone with God when I just need a break from the world. And, and what we're going to talk about today is that devices, you know, our phones, our tablets, computers, social media, the news particularly, right, whether you watch CNN, Fox, MSNBC, if you like being bored to death, you can watch C-SPAN. Um, no matter what you're watching, we need a break from that stuff. So, you know, we're not saying again that these things are inherently evil or that we need to do away with it completely, But remember, those things can become our servant or they can become our master. And if we don't do some things in our life to put them in their proper place, they're going to become our master and they'll quickly take over our lives. The first term that was ever used to describe what we now commonly call PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was used during World War I. And you might be familiar with this term. It's called shell-shocked. We use it to describe other things now, but back then, that's what they used to describe what they didn't really know at the time was PTSD. Listen to this article from the BBC. The British described this kind of strange phenomenon that was going on with guys who were returning from World War I. It said, across the country, doctors were mystified by a condition they hadn't seen before. Soldiers were returning from the trenches blind, deaf, mute, or even paralyzed, but doctors couldn't find any physical symptoms to explain the problems. So what these guys were facing was insane. If, if you've never really studied World War I, um, you know, the Battle of Verdun by itself, there were 800,000 casualties. 70% of those were caused by artillery. The Germans launched 2 million shells in their opening bombardment, which lasted 10 hours. 
That's, uh, that's 55 exploding shells every single minute for 10 hours straight. The two sides eventually fired between 40 and 60 million shells over, over 10 months. You could hear the explosions from 100 miles away. That's like hearing an explosion from here in Munising. Okay? The, the soldiers described certain hills as being so heavily bombed that they gushed fire like volcanoes. And so they called this madness that ensued in the men who returned from these front lines being shell-shocked. And what the armies finally figured out after time was that you can't keep a guy in the trenches on the front lines for month after month after month and expect him to still be able to fight. You've got to get him off the front lines to, to where he can just stand up straight for a little bit where he doesn't have to sleep in the mud, where he doesn't have to listen to exploding shells over his head every second, you know, for, for hours and hours on end. And what they found is that when they got these guys off for just a little bit of a break, when they returned to the front lines, they were restored. Their symptoms actually even went away. People who were paralyzed were able to walk and fight again because they had gotten away from that for just a little bit for a break. And for the Christian in today's world, we're under constant bombardment. There are virtual shells that are flying at us all day, every single day, no matter where we look. You know, whether it's on social media where we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, whether it's on the news where you could find, you know, I could look at the news today and probably find that every politician in the United States did something that I don't agree with today. That's pretty common. That's just the world we live in. Okay, and then there are other really horrible things that happen online, like gambling and pornography addictions, trafficking, bullying, it can be a platform for hate groups, for recruiting terrorists. You know, when we look at that, it's no wonder so many of us are feeling defeated. It's no wonder so many of us are experiencing depression and anxiety. It's no wonder so many of us are longing for deeper relationships, for a deeper spiritual life, but coming up empty. We've gotten so busy staying connected in this world and on the front lines of a digital age where we're constantly being told and taught what to think, how to act, how to dress, who to follow, who to listen to. This world is launching an all-out attack on us through the media, and I can't help but think that if we look at some of these issues that we face today, they're really symptoms of spiritual shell shock. But we're going to turn the corner here because there's two words in the Bible. I was reminded of these this week. I've got an ongoing kind of text between some guys where we just encourage each other throughout the week. And I was reminded of my two favorite words in Scripture this week, but God. See, it's easy to look at all the different things that are going on in this world and get distracted. It's easy to look at our own sin and feel hopeless. But there's two words, but God. Because God hasn't left us to our own devices to just yearn for him without providing a path. Jesus himself modeled very practical ways for us to disconnect from a distracted world and reconnect with him to experience the glory of his presence in a relationship that will transform and restore us. So what we're going to look at today are three practical disciplines from an event that took place in Jesus' ministry called the Transfiguration. Now, the Transfiguration is just a way to describe a, a change in appearance that occurs from within. This event's recorded in three of the four Gospels. So it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John kind of hints at it when he says, we beheld his glory. Uh, but what we're going to read from today is Mark's account. And I'm going to reference Luke a little bit briefly. But turn to Mark chapter 9. We'll be in uh, verse 2. Through 13. And I'm going to go grab my water real quick while you're turning. Sorry, I'm on the back end of this cold and I'm just getting through it, but my throat's a little dry. So, Mark chapter 9, verse 2. <clears throat> now, after six days, 
Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up high on a mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to them, Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, you may have noticed, I was careful to describe this as an event and not a story. Now, for some of you who are hearing this for the first time, you might think, that kind of sounds like a story. That sounds like something somebody made up, like a work of fiction. But I want to read really quickly for you what Peter, who was there when this happened, had to say about it years later. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, he wrote, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father glory and honor when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter, who at this point is waiting to be executed for his faith, he's waiting to be killed for what he believes. He says, guys, this isn't some story that we made up. This isn't some cunningly devised fable that I'm telling. This is an event that happened. This is something we heard with our ears and saw with our eyes. Now this question that we ask is what does this event teach us about who Jesus is and how we are to respond? Excuse me. The primary purpose of this passage is clearly to point us to the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he was both God and man, that his suffering and death were voluntary, and that the kingdom of God was coming with power. But as we read this passage, what we see emerge from the text is a pattern for daily living that's supported throughout Scripture and by Jesus' own example of getting alone with God to study and pray, and in that time experiencing the fullness of God's presence. And it's that relationship, it's in that relationship with God where he restores our souls and makes us effective and equips us for what lies ahead. Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. It's our souls that grow weary under under that bombardment of media. And when our souls grow weary, we become less effective as disciples less effective as parents, less effective as spouses, as co-workers, as coaches, and in every other area of life. So here's how we put ourselves in a place where God can restore our souls that have been drained. We get alone with God daily to pray and study. Mark writes that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up high on a mountain apart by themselves. Luke adds for us in his gospel that they went up on the mountain to pray. Now, there's a lot that we don't know here. We don't know whether it was intercession 
We don't know if it was just a relational prayer to the Father. We don't know how Jesus was arranged with his disciples, if it was like, you know, you go pray by that tree, I'll go pray by this tree. What we do know from Luke's account is that the disciples fell asleep. They kind of had a habit of doing this. You can look through the New Testament and see all kinds of examples of when the disciples fell asleep. So we don't know if, like, you know, they were holding hands and Jesus was like, Peter, it's your turn. And, and Peter's like, where were we? You know? But here's what we do know. We do know that Jesus often left the crowds to be with God and pray. And not knowing what he prayed, here's what we can say. Prayer is where intimacy and communication in our relationship with God takes place. Two weeks ago, we talked about the relationship with others and the idea that if you take your cell phone out when you're meeting with somebody and you set it on the table in front of you, that's like saying, you know, I'm here with you physically, but just in case somebody more important comes along, I'm going to set this right here. And, and you're kind of on notice, like, keep me entertained, but, but if something comes along, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it, right? The same thing goes for our alone time with God. God wants undistracted intimacy with us. He doesn't want us to be connected to 500 other people and him. He wants us to be connected with him. Imagine this in the context of the marriage bed. Don't imagine it too much, but you know, okay, you know what I mean? PG, folks, right? Keep it PG, okay? You know, married couples, who would go to the bedroom for, you know, that one-on-one alone time and set your phone on the pillow like, just in case, you know, just in case Mike sends me a funny meme about dogs, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this right here because I wouldn't want to miss out on that, you know. That would be funny. We laugh about that because it's foolish. Nobody would do that. At least I hope nobody would do that. They'd probably kill the moment for uh, at least a few months, right? Here's the, here's the thing, okay. God wants that intimacy with us. We know that the marriage bed is a place of solitude. It's a place where the two become one. It's a place where intimacy is formed, where communication happens. It's a sacred time. Our time alone with God is sacred time. It can't be infringed. It can't be disrupted and and interrupted by all these other things. It's a place where the relationship is cultivated. Just look at Jesus' example in this, okay? I'm going to roll through a bunch of other scripture. Here's what Jesus did. He started his ministry spending 40 days alone to pray. Before he chose the 12 disciples, he spent an entire night alone praying to God in the desert. When he received the news of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from there to a lonely place apart. After the feeding of 5,000 people, he went up to the hills by himself. Following a long night of work in the morning, a great while before the day, he rose and went out to a lonely place. When the 12 disciples returned from a preaching and healing mission, Jesus instructed them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place. There are scores and scores and scores of other examples. He sought the solitude of the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before he went to the cross. You see where I'm going with this, okay? Jesus made it a priority to get alone with God to pray. Jesus was God. Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. He had all the power of the Spirit indwelling in him, and he made it a priority to get alone with God away from the crowds and pray. So we need to assume just by that that if he's going to make it important, we should make it important. So we're going to move on to just a practical application. How do we do this nowadays? Well, the first part... Location and duration are not that important, okay? You don't have to go to that beach in Bora Bora. You don't have to go to that hunting shack out in the middle of the woods to be alone with God in prayer. I don't have to go to my living room to be there, okay? There are times when that's nice, but it's not necessary. You can practice them anywhere, even in the midst of other people. And so the first thing that we can do is take advantage of all the little solitudes that fill our day, whether it's the first cup of coffee before everyone else is up, 
changing out of your work clothes at the end of the day, in the car after you drop off the kids at practice, slipping out onto the porch for five minutes after dinner, you could lock yourself in the bathroom for a little bit if you need to. Just let the chaos happen out there. Lock yourself in the bathroom, okay? That's what Jesus modeled for us, not locking himself in the bathroom, okay, but walking with God. Jesus walked with God always, but he cultivated that relationship in the in-between space, and he took that wherever he could get it. Because here's what happens to me, and maybe this happens to you too. Okay, I wake up, I start my day, I'm busy, I got all kinds of stuff going on, and so I rush from one thing to the next. I drive to work, I listen to some music to try to just turn off my brain. I get to work, I rush from task to task. When I've got five free minutes kind of in between those tasks, I scroll through Facebook, I kind of check what's going on because that's mindless and easy, right? I get home, I rush from task to task at home, I, I, I watch Netflix way too late at night, I go to bed later than I should. At the end of the day, I say, you know what? I didn't spend any quiet time with God today. I should pray. And I make it to like, God, thank you for this day before I fall asleep. And I wake up the next morning kind of feeling dejected and like a failure. I'm guessing from the nods out there that some other people have been there besides me. That, that we fight this kind of constant battle, you know, for our time. In the meantime, you know, when I think about those days, I've spent all my time filling my mind with junk that isn't of God. But then I wonder why I'm disconnected from him. You know, imagine if instead of checking Facebook, you know, scrolling through a news feed, listening to the radio, playing Candy Crush, imagine if during those little moments of the day, we just took time to be alone with God in prayer. In Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster writes of the importance of prayer. He said, it is the discipline of prayer that brings us into the deepest and highest work of the human spirit. Real prayer is life-creating and life-changing. In prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, to will the things he wills. Progressively, we are taught to see things from God's point of view. Now again, Richard Foster makes this sound like something that we need to make a priority in our lives. And so beyond taking back some of those little moments during the day, we also need to establish a time and a place where we're going to be alone with God to pray. This part's hard. This part's hard for us to start out. It requires discipline. That's why it's hard. It requires us to do something that we may or may not want to do. But know this, that of all the things that we can spend our time doing, it's prayer that catapults us into this new frontier of a deeper spiritual life. And so any time that we spend praying is time well spent. Now, once you've silenced yourself in prayer before God in solitude, you're in a great place to turn to God's word and receive instruction. So going back to the transfiguration, we'll pick up in Mark 9, verse 8. It says, suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, only Jesus with themselves. So this is an important part. That's actually a profound statement. They followed Jesus up onto the mountain to be alone with God in prayer. They saw this miraculous transfiguration, this incredible sight of Jesus in his transfigured glory. They saw him as the personal fulfillment of all the Old Testament law. That's why Moses was there. They saw him as the personal fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. That's why Elijah was there. They were witnesses of his divine nature, and they heard the voice from heaven calling down, saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him, saying, listen to what he has to say. And now they're alone with Jesus, and that's exactly where we want to be. That's the purpose of the disciplines. It, it centers us, that getting away and prayer centers us to be alone with Jesus 
with nothing else to distract us to hear what he has to say to us. And look what happens next. It says, they came down from the mountain. Also, a simple statement that's profound. Okay, Peter wanted to stay up there, right? Peter's like, Jesus, it's good for us to be here. We should set up camp, stay for a weekend, make some s'mores, right? Jesus is like, no. Actually, God tells Peter pretty much to shut up. He says, this is my son, hear him, exclamation point. Peter quiets himself. Then they hear from the Lord. So look at verse 9 continues. It says, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming and is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So they're still alone with Jesus at this point. They're getting ready to go back into the world, and they turn to him for instruction, and he points them to the written word of God. He points them back to the written word. Now, why does he do that? 2 Timothy 3.16 is our answer. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's pretty awesome when you think about it. This word that Jesus points us to equips us. It instructs us in righteousness. So, so we get along with God to pray, which is our communication with God. We contemplate and study the word, which is God's communication instruction to us, and it teaches us sound doctrine. It teaches us where we've gone wrong. It exposes our sin and corrects us, teaching us to be righteous and equipping us for the good works that are ahead. If you read on in the story after the transfiguration, immediately Jesus and the disciples go back into the world and they cast out a demon from a boy that Jesus said this kind of demon can only be cast out through prayer and fasting. So in that time in the transfiguration, they were equipped to go out and do the ministry that God had set before them. So when we do these three things together, solitude, prayer, and study, and when we do them with regularity, we'll see God's transforming and restorative work start taking shape in our lives. John 8, 31 through 32 says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Romans 12.2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect word of God, will of God. So how do we do that? We do that by applying our minds and our time to contemplate and study and live by the word of God. There's a guy named Alexander Pope. I don't know who he is. He just he wrote something in a devotional that I read. He said, some people will never learn anything because they understand everything too soon. Some people will never learn anything because they understand everything too soon. The internet age has produced a lot of people who are smart but have no depth. It's all surface knowledge like an oil sheen on top of the water. We can recite facts and figures about all manner of things but don't really understand much about anything. This happens to us spiritually. You know, online we can read about five hacks or seven simple tricks or ten ways that we can, you know, change our behavior. 
If we read the Bible, maybe we only read it to win an argument with a family member who doesn't believe. But because we don't simply learn to abide in the word and allow God to instruct us through his truth, we don't see the complete transformation and renewing of our minds. And so this is where really these three disciplines of solitude, prayer, and study come together. Because we can know a lot about the Bible, and we can know a lot about God, but not know God. Pastor Brooks used this recently. I'm going to reheat this illustration because it's good. I can know all these stats on Miguel Cabrera. He's a Tigers baseball player. He's pretty good if you don't know who he is. Okay, I can know all the stats on him. I can know how many times Miguel Cabrera has been struck out on a Tuesday night by a red-headed left-handed pitcher. Okay, baseball keeps some crazy stats. Like, they keep some crazy stats in baseball. Like, you could find that out. I can know his kids' names and birthdays. I can know what his favorite thing is to eat. But if I show up at Miguel Cabrera's house and they're like, hey, bro, it's me, I'm probably going to get a ride in the police car home, right? And not up in the front seat either. Because I don't know Miguel Cabrera. We don't have a relationship. I can know all kinds of things about him, and he doesn't know me. Knowledge doesn't make a relationship. It's time spent together communicating. And intimacy is what makes a relationship. So as we approach the study of God's word, we do it prayerfully, having spent time with him in solitude. Not so that we can memorize facts and figures about God and pass some standardized test later on. Right? We do it to cultivate a relationship. We study to simply know God. A friend of mine, I'm going to steal a quote from him because it's good. He says, don't study to know the word of God. Study to know the God of the word. If we want to break through the distractions of this world that, that, that this digital age has created, if we want to live in freedom, knowing the truth, rather than in slavery to our devices, if we want to experience the fullness of God, we have to start making a daily habit of getting alone with him to pray and study his word. As we read the transfiguration, it's as if Jesus is calling out to us. He's saying, come and observe, be still and know that I am God. He's saying, know me, start to get to know me, understand who I am, pray with me, spend some time communicating with me. I'm the fulfillment of the law and prophecy, the one who willingly sacrificed my life for you, the one who defeated sin and death, who rose from the grave just as I predicted I would do. Receive my instruction through my word. Everything in this story whether it's the transfiguration itself or the disciplines we learn from it or any other spiritual discipline for that matter, points us back to him. It all points us back to Jesus because without him, we have no hope. There's no hope for any of the problems that we described without Jesus. But with him, all things are possible. He's calling us out into deeper waters. He's calling us to get out of the kiddie pool, to jump into the deep end with him. You know, we need to start learning to be alone with him in silence and in intimacy of prayer and allowing him to equip us through his word. We can't do that if we don't make the time to get into it. So I want to leave you with just a few practical steps to help you get alone with God to pray and study. These are practical steps you could use for really any discipline in your life. There's nothing too special about them. Okay, number one, look for that in-between space during your day. You'll be surprised how much of it you have. Take advantage of it. Use that time, even if you just use a little bit of it, to pray to God quietly. Your life can be transformed in those in-between spaces. Number two, schedule a time and a place to be alone with God, to pray and study his word every day. 
Number three, start small and work your way up. If I want to run a marathon, but like today I decide I want to run a marathon, but I'm not a runner, I'm not going to sign up for a marathon that happens tomorrow morning, okay? I can't run the 26.2 tomorrow. Maybe I start by going for a walk instead of uh, sitting on the couch watching football, okay? And then kind of build my way up to being able to run that far. Same thing spiritually with disciplines. Don't start off saying, I'm going to pray for four hours. I'm going to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm going to pray for four hours every day before work. You're just going to set yourself up for disappointment. Start with 10 minutes. Say, God, I'm going to, I'm going to make a commitment to giving you this 10 minutes every single day just to be with you, to read a couple verses, and to pray. And build on that. Make it 15. Make it 20. By the end of the year, you'll have spent hundreds of hours with God that you hadn't spent before. And in hundreds of hours spent cultivating relationship with God, he can transform your life. And then finally, number four is stick to it and persevere. If you miss it, look, you're going to miss a day. You're going to miss two days. You might miss 10 days. Don't let that make you feel defeated. That happens to everybody. Sometimes we feel like, oh, I missed a day, and and now, like, God's mad at me, or or I I feel like I can't approach him anymore. That's not where he wants you. Pick it back up and just start like you never even quit. Persevere. I guarantee you, God guarantees you that if you spend time loving him, searching for him, that he will transform and restore us and equip us for the work that he set before us. It's a really fitting way to end the service today. We're going to end with communion. I I can't think of a better way to to finish this up because, again, it all points back to Jesus. And so I'm going to call Pastor Mitch up, and he's going to lead us in a time of prayer.